Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode three. And just a note to our listeners, welcome listeners, welcome new listeners. Some of what you hear will be outdated. That's because we wanted to wait to have three episodes before we started promoting this podcast. And we have made it to three episodes. In Trump years, a day is like a hundred days. So um, this this is the first podcast that I believe we're going to be getting into some current events, some Trump stuff. Um, so if you're listening to this today, what we're talking about might have happened two or three weeks ago. And you might be like, that seems like two or 300 days ago. But we should say, with that said, we should say that now that we've got three in the can and we just let the cat out of the bag about the first three, we are going to do everything that we can. And of course, there will be some exceptions here and there to bring you a podcast every week. We should also say, I'm your host, Justin Siegel. And with me, as always, my co-host, Rob Leifer, otherwise known as Riz. Any more housekeeping for the day? So I think the housekeeping is good. I think we, we got that out of the way. I think Brooms back in the broom closet. We did. We did. I think we should just jump in. We actually, we, we have a pretty structured show for you today. We, we have some clips to play for you. We got some clips. We got a great interview with Ambassador Ned Siegel, also my father. That's coming up later on the pod. Well, you know, I should also say that this is episode three. And at a certain point, it's going to be awkward to be counting the episodes. Like when we're up to episode like 2338, like it's going to be like, welcome to episode 2338. Like, that's going to be weird. What number do we stop counting the episodes? That's the question. This is a great time to ask for listener feedback. Sound off in the comments on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you listen to your podcast and let us know when we should stop counting. Otherwise, we're just going to keep on going. And Jay, thanks for bringing that up, actually, because that is a good housekeeping thing. We are going to have a section of our, on our Facebook where you'll be able to ask us questions that you want us to address on the air, and we will do our best to answer them. Hopefully, they're not stupid questions. To do that, you can go to any of our socials. To find our socials, go to downthemiddlepod.com. Uh, so let's, let's dive in. Riz, what do you got for us today? As we mentioned, this might've, you might be listening to this and, and thinking, oh, that happened a while ago. Cause again, every day in Trump world is, is like a year. But, uh, last week Trump went to Michigan, it was in Michigan and he gave this speech at the, uh, the Ford plant. It ended up being a very controversial speech on the left. And he went into a whole thing about Henry Ford and bloodlines and all these Trumpian things. To give you a little bit of a historical background on Henry Ford, because some people might not know this, uh, this is a great time to bring back our two things could be true at once. Henry Ford was one of the more iconic uh, industrial figures in human history. The Ford production model, you know, changed the way businesses in America and around the world uh, operated. He is in the same conversation as the Walt Disney's and the Rockefellers and the Bill Gates and all those people, an extremely influential Amer American figure. True thing number two, he was a vicious and rabid anti-Semite. I mean, a very, very anti-Semitic, even in that day and age, in the early 20s, when anti-Semitism was a little more accepted in America. Uh, he believed in this completely fraudulent document called the Elders of Zion, which a lot of Jewish conspiracies derive out of, which basically said that there was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy to control the world. Uh, he actually published anti-Semitic newspapers, and, uh, and that was in the early 20s, and he was sued for libel and had to shut down the newspaper. And then he received an award from the Nazi government, basically for being so anti-Semitic. 
he was convinced that there was a Jewish conspiracy against him, a worldwide global conspiracy. Uh, He said it all the time. He wrote about it. This is actually a good diversion. I'm just going to go off track for a second here and say, for all you people who subscribe to cancel culture, do not bring your Ford truck to be impounded tomorrow. Okay. And this is actually a good lesson. This is something we should just touch on very quickly. We don't do that in America. Okay. There are lots of men that were very influential and women who were very influential that were very flawed as well. I look at this as the same way I look at our founding fathers. Okay. They were flawed, conflicted, brilliant men. They wrote the greatest documents ever made in the history of the world. And they were slaveholders. And slavery is a deeply, deeply evil thing. And I think 99.9% of, of Americans would agree with that at this point. If someone actually sat down and made a list of all the inventions, music, art, I mean, you could go on and on and on, of people that were flawed and, and, and all the things you would cancel someone for today, we'd have very little left. Exactly. That's part of the sort of leftist, far leftist ideology that a lot of us don't agree with and it doesn't sit well with. Because, you know, you could you could go on and on and on. I mean, Volkswagen had tied to, ties to the Nazi government. A lot of people driving around in Volkswagen now. We don't do that. Ford is a company that has Jews who work there now. This was a long time ago. We don't rip up the Constitution. We don't cancel everything that we no longer, uh, the people who made those documents or the people who formed those businesses engaged in things that we don't agree with now. We understand, we have a human understanding an innate understanding that human beings evolve. I have like the mental picture of you leading America by its little teeny five-year-old hand right now. <laughs> exactly. I feel like it has to be said nowadays. It just happened to, to Jimmy Fallon. Look what just went down. And he had plenty of people come to his defense, plenty of people, you know, shame him for, for what happened. And it's, it's, it's a shame that the court of public opinion is getting more power in this country. Yeah, it's why I always say that that kind of ideology always ends up eating itself because you can never be woke and pure enough. No matter how woke and pure you are, somebody will always be woker and purer. If we continue on that path, the only kind of politicians we're going to have are people like Donald Trump who are just shameless, who just say, this is who I am. I don't care. I don't apologize for anything. And that's not what we want. We don't want a world where that's the only kind of politician we have. We want to be able to forgive people who ask for forgiveness, who say, I did something bad. I believed in something stupid. Forgive me for that. Man, did you open a can of worms? We definitely should tackle at some point. I mean, not just this. This could be its own few episodes, but also how did we get here? How did we get to Trump? That's a great question that we should ask, that we should answer or attempt to answer on a, on a future pod. Right. We, we definitely should. Back to current events. Sorry for the diversion there, everyone. Uh, so Trump is at this Ford plant. He's giving this speech in his usual idiotic tone of voice. And he goes off about Ford and starts talking about bloodlines. And this is what it sounded like. The company founded by a man named Henry Ford. Good bloodlines. Good bloodlines. If you believe in that stuff, got good blood. (laughs) They teamed up with the company founded by Thomas Edison. That's General Electric. It's good stuff. That's good stuff. And you put it all together. They're they're all looking down right now, and they'd be very proud of what they see. Now, I'm watching this live, right? And I'm shaking my head as I'm watching it, thinking, oh, what an idiot. This is going to open up a can of worms. I go on Twitter, 
and there's huge controversy. Oh, just, you know, and again, you probably don't even remember it because every day is a controversy, a new controversy with Donald Trump. At the time, this was like the controversy of the hour with Trump, right? And everyone's like, he has no idea about how insensitive that is to say that about Henry Ford. First of all, Trump loves to talk about bloodlines. This, is, this seems to be something he's very obsessed with, which to me is a dog whistle to the sort of blood and soil white nationalist crowd, because that's what they believe. They believe they're the chosen race and that that is all, they're the master race rather, and that that is all in their blood. And Trump loves to talk about genes and blood. I just think that's a dog whistle. Whether or not he's dog whistling at them, I can't answer. I just don't like it. I think it's stupid to, to do that. But I'm listening, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the, at the controversy that's, that's, that's going on on Twitter. And, you know, Twitter is a cesspool of controversy to begin with. And I'm just thinking to myself, God, that was stupid. Why did, why, like, why would he go into that whole thing? Why not just say, I'm happy to be here at Ford. This is great. You know, and you always know there's a difference between teleprompter Trump and riffing Trump because the teleprompter always says something like at least somewhat meaningful. And then he follows it up with when he realizes what he just read. So he'll be like, and the Constitution is a great document, really great document. It really is great. Like he'll follow it up because like he just realized it. So anyway, the next day I'm listening to Ben Shapiro's podcast and Ben Shapiro, for those who don't know, is a probably the most, the most prominent conservative commentator. He's, he's freaking brilliant. I mean, he got into Harvard law school when he was like 16 years old. Um, he's very conservative. He started off as a never Trumper. Uh, he became a sometimes Trumper, as he calls himself. He actually, uh, in the beginning, in the early days of Trump's presidency, he had he did this little shtick he called "Good Trump, Bad Trump." He even had a little jingle. It went "Good Trump, Bad Trump, Which Trump will we get today?" Do do. And he would the whole thing about it was like he would praise Trump when Trump did something he liked, and he would slam Trump when Trump did something he didn't like. And I thought that was actually good. Recently, in the, maybe because it's an election year, I've noticed him trying to make more excuses for Trump's behavior. So I'm listening to Shapiro's show, and he brings this up on the show, and this is what it sounded like. Play the clip. You really think that he's referring to Henry Ford's anti-Semitism there? That he's dog whistling to the alt-right when he refers to the Ford bloodlines? Of course not. This blew up on social media last night, obviously, because Trump's a racist and we have to impute racism rather than ignorance to him. Again, there's a very simple solution to Trump saying dumb things, and that is the man says dumb things. He doesn't know anything about history. Okay, Trump has, I, I have friends who have been to events where Trump has literally said, I've written more books than I have read. Donald Trump is not a master of American history. He is not fluent in American history. He doesn't know things. He's absolutely right. Now, I'm about to say something very controversial for my friends on the left, okay? Here it is, ready? Donald Trump is not a racist. Boom, all right. Sit down, snowflake. Brain exploded. Okay, but now I am going to say something that my friends on the right are gonna find very controversial. Here it is. You know why Donald Trump is not a racist? Because he literally does not have the intellectual capacity to be one. Okay? There it is. Boom. Sit down. Right, wingers? Here's the thing about Trump. As I talked about last week, Trump is, has no ideology at all. He is a complete nihilist, man. He believes in nothing. They were nihilists, man. Huh? They kept saying they believe in nothing. Nihilists. 
I mean, say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. He has never believed in anything. Racism is an ideology. It's a stupid ideology. You always hear people say racism is born out of ignorance. This is absolutely true. But it is an ideology. Donald Trump does not have an ideology. He believes in absolutely nothing. He is pathologically unideological. Donald Trump does not have the intellectual capacity to be a racist. And I agree with Ben Shapiro. He is just stupid. And I'm listening to Ben Shapiro say this, and I think to myself, holy crap, Ben Shapiro, one of the most prominent conservative commentators in the world, just said the quiet part out loud. And I haven't heard him do that in regard to Trump for a while, maybe not since before the election, actually. He just said the quiet part out loud. He just said what every single conservative person already knows, that Donald Trump doesn't know anything. He's not a student of history. He is not someone that strives to learn more. He is not somebody that studies. By his own admission, he doesn't read his um, security briefings. He doesn't read his intel. He has admitted in public that he has written more books than he has read. He has said that. Ben Shapiro is completely right about that. He's, he's bragged about that. This is a guy that brags about his ignorance. He has no desire to learn about the complexities of the American conscience, of the American soul. He has no desire to become an intellectual. And when Ben Shapiro said that, I said to myself, when you have brilliant conservative commentators who are noticing this and saying, yeah, that's the excuse. It's just Trump being Trump. Trump's an idiot. There is something really wrong about that that really rubs me the wrong way. It's really more about the party accepting the fact that this is this man. Wouldn't you rather someone, yes, who signs policies that you like, who runs the government the way that you like, and not saying Trump doesn't do that, he does. But wouldn't you prefer someone who does that and is also smart and also eloquent? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's not even a matter of smart. It's a matter of respect for the institutions, respect for everything that has come before you, and a desire to learn, a desire to become better at it. Donald Trump has such an arrogance about his stupidity. I think what it says is that the American public has become so cynical about politics that they're willing to say, you know what? The guy's a complete jackass. He's a moron. He knows nothing about America. He knows nothing about American history. He certainly knows nothing about the Constitution. I could guarantee he's never read it. But He's our guy. He's our idiot. So whatever. Let's put him up there. So I'm going to begin with what is fast becoming our favorite segment. Two things can be true at once. I also agree with Ben Shapiro. I think that uneducated, uninformed, off-the-cuff Trump was being uneducated, uninformed, off-the-cuff Trump. And there's proof to fuel Shapiro's theory as this rhetoric that he was using, down to the word choice, is just part of his shtick. It was not a one-off. You mentioned it, whether it's Trump referring to his great genes, air quotes, passed on to him by his parents and grandparents, the good bloodlines, more air quotes, and other humans or even champion racehorses he's brought up before. He told British business leaders at a dinner in 2008, quote, you've all got such good bloodlines. You've all got such amazing DNA. He thinks that that conversation makes him seem intellectual. He thinks that because his uncle, John Trump, who taught at MIT, he thinks because he's related to him, it automatically makes him smart. 
which feeds his whole, I have a natural ability rhetoric. And how many times have we heard that? Now, the second thing that's true here, which I've stated before, is that the president of the United States needs to be responsible for the things he says and held accountable for the things he says. Henry Ford accepted the Grand Cross of the German Eagle, which is the Nazi regime's highest honor for foreigners. And Hitler himself sent Ford a congratulations message for achieving that award. As you mentioned earlier, it is no secret that the two men were linked in anti-Semitic ideology and held each other in great esteem. Trump, like presidents before him, should have had prepared a speech, had it vetted, and then corrected. And I'm asking way too much for him to actually have historical knowledge of Henry Ford's anti-Semitism, but yes, that would be preferred. This was unacceptable, it was a gaffe, and deserving of an apology, not that I think we'll ever get one. So do I think that Trump enjoys his nods and winks? Yeah. Do I think this is one of them? Absolutely not. When he does nod and wink, they're more obvious than this was. But I do think the alt-right will think he's winking and nodding. And among the disappearance of the accountability of our country's greatest leadership position, that is, to me, the greatest tragedy here. That was great. And I think a lot of people are a lot of people on the right might be listening to this right now and thinking, what's the big deal? Trump says stuff. That is the big deal. That is the big deal because he's president of the United States. He's the he is the most powerful person in the world. And you want to feel proud of your president. Even if you don't agree with his policies, you want him to at least sound like an educated human being, not have the vocabulary of my six-year-old who's asleep in bed right now. This is what I say about Obama all the time, and I'll continue to say it on this podcast. Did not agree with his policies. I was very proud to have him representing our country. And that's that's a perfect segue into another thing I wanted to talk about just to sort of wrap this whole thing up, which is the idea of racism. Because I am of the left, as we've already gone over many times, but one of the things I hate that the left has done is overuse the word racism. If I was the Speaker of the House, if I was Nancy Pelosi, I would call a meeting of all the de- of the entire democratic chamber and I would sit everyone down and I'd say guys I'm calling a moratorium on the word racism or racist for the next 13 years because racism and racist is a, are very charged words that have a lot of meaning and they have demeaned it so much by saying everything is racist if you didn't agree with an obama policy you were racist if you uh, don't agree with somebody now you're racist if you won't wear a mask in the covid-19 era you're racist everything is racist and there is real racism going on and it demeans the real racism and i just hate it But with that said, I have a list. I have four yes or no questions that I want to ask you, okay? And I want you to answer them with just a yes or no. And there are people on the right who are going to listen to this and they're going to say, oh, those are gotcha questions, Riz. They're not gotcha questions. They're sincere questions, okay? Number one, if Barack Obama had said idiotic things constantly and had showed no interest in understanding the complex dynamics of being an American and being in America, do you think he would have been able to be a president? Like gotten elected or been able to continue his presidency? When I say b- be able to be a president, I mean gotten elected. No, absolutely not. Question number two. If Barack Obama, four weeks before the election, had a tape that came out where he's bragging no. about... <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, he would not have been able to be president. Okay, question number three. If Barack Obama had been a business owner, and as a business owner, he had filed for bankruptcy six times. Do you think Barack Obama would have been able to be president? Maybe. If he was the Barack Obama that we know, 
Plus, he failed in business six times and had to go and had to declare bankruptcy. I think there's a chance people wouldn't care. Okay. All right. I respect that. Lastly, if Barack Obama wasn't a constitutional law professor who didn't go to Columbia and then Harvard Law School, do you think there's a chance in hell that somebody like Barack Obama, a black man, becomes president? No. That right there is white privilege. That is what people are talking about. And I know there's people on the right right now who are cringing because they hate that term. But the fact of the matter is that Barack Obama had to be the most intellectual, smartest black man in the history of black men to become president. And Donald Trump had to be a failed businessman who filed for bankruptcy six times a thrice married conspiracy theorist white man to become president. And that is what pisses people off. That is why people look at Donald Trump and look at the state of America right now and get sad about it and get discouraged because that disparity exists. But can I add to that? Because I don't think it just stops at race. I think it continues to gender. I think it continues to religion to some degree. There is a bias. This isn't just about race, in my opinion. For whatever that genre of human is, that isn't a old white man, they will have to be the best version of whatever they are in order to get elected president. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think you're exactly right. It's probably the most glaring when it comes to race. But, you know, you might be able to say the same about Hillary Clinton and the things that she wasn't allowed to get away with that Donald Trump clearly was allowed to get away with. There are things that Donald Trump is able to get away with that just simply no other. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's maybe it's gender as well. I think that this issue can be specific to Donald Trump because I think another president may not be able to get away with it. What you mentioned earlier about how much he doesn't care. He's just shameless. He really does not care what people think of him. Uh, and it's worked for him. I don't think the same can be said about most other people, especially other presidents that have been in office before him. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, George Bush, George W. Bush, was not known for being the uh, the brightest star in the sky. I mean, God, he, he's like Aristotle compared to Trump. Even George Bush, what, what he had was not necessarily great public speaking ability, uh, he didn't come off as being a brilliant man, but he had sensitivity and a basic understanding of what of the fact that America is a melting pot with lots of different sensitivities, and you had to be sensitive towards everyone. Yeah, he was he was able to settle tension, and he he could read the temperature in the room and react accordingly. Now Trump. I don't know if he can read the temperature of the room or not. I know he doesn't care. I don't think he could read any temperature outside of his own. That's honestly the thing. I think it just always goes back to what is good for Trump. What is good for Trump? His ideology is just Trump. Hello, listeners. We forgot to record a segue to our interview for this week. Give us a break. It's our first interview. So this will be serving as that. Without further ado, here is our interview with Ambassador Ned Siegel, or as I call him, Dad. In addition to his 30 years of entrepreneurial success and real estate development, Ambassador Siegel has a distinguished record of public service. He was nominated by President George W. Bush in May 2007 to serve as the ambassador of the United States to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. During his tenure, he resided full-time in Nassau, and I visited it as much as humanly possible, serving as chief of mission responsible for all operations of the Nassau embassy. 
Prior to his ambassadorship, he was honored by two additional presidential appointments. In 2006, he served with Ambassador John Bolton, who has had an increased public presence as of late, uh, at the United Nations in New York as the senior advisor to the U.S. mission and as the United States representative to the 61st session of the United Nations General Assembly. Before that, from 2003 to 2007, he served on the board of directors of OPIC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which was established in 1971 to help U.S. businesses invest overseas. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Connecticut in 1973, where he played lacrosse and was a team captain. He received a Juris Doctorate from the Dickinson School of Law in 1976. In December 2014, he received an honorary degree of Doctor of Business Administration from the University of South Carolina. And in 1981, he watched my mom give birth to me. Welcome to the podcast, Dad. You know, that is my greatest distinction and honor, being your father. That's very sweet, although I don't consider it to be true, but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> well, don't tell your brother and sister. Yeah, I'll make sure they don't listen. Yeah, please. <laughs> so I thought we'd get a couple intro questions in first before we get to the deep stuff. What political party do you associate yourself with? I have always been uh, and found a connection to the Republican Party in high school when we were studying uh, politics, and uh, I took a civics course. That's when I first really came aware of uh, the politics of this country, which was back in, I'd say, 1966, 67, 68, and 69. And that was during the height of the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War was the focal point, not necessarily whether you were Republican or Democrat, it really was at that time. Are you for the war? Or are you against the war? When did you align yourself with the Republican Party as an adult? It really was interesting for me in the sense that in 1967, uh, your grandfather and grandmother uh, took my two brothers and I to Israel for the first time. What I got to see about what Israel represented, what it was, the people, the country, the land, um, I fell in love with that country. Um, but I also recognized that I was an American. So I always looked at Israel, even back then, as being like my mother and America being like my father. I always looked at myself and I always said, am I an American Jew or am I a Jewish American? And there is a distinction, not to get into the details of that. As I looked at both parties and studied history, I never could understand and would have a debate with my dad about how he could be a Democrat uh, when during the Second World War, there were policies against Jews in that war, the Holocaust, where there were decisions not to bomb the train tracks. They sent back the St. Louis, that the policies were not in favor of Jewish people. And yet the Democrats embraced the Democratic Party with full vigor. And as I read more and more, I never understood it then, I do now. I gravitated to the Republican Party as a Jewish American because I felt that I needed at that time to be active. If you want to change things and you want to make a difference, you can't stay on the sidelines. You have to dive in and be part of a system, a group, an organization. So in the early 80s, 
you could fit all the Jewish Republicans in a phone booth through a gentleman by the name of Max Fisher, who was a very influential Jewish businessman out of Detroit, Michigan. He was an advisor to Nixon, very close to Henry Kissinger. I had a partner in, as a developer in New Jersey, Larry Bathgate, who happened to be the finance chair for the RNC. Larry sat me down and said, you have an opportunity to be active in the Republican National Committee. Uh, I was in my 30s, my young 30s at that time. And Larry said that you can help us go out into America and bring more Jewish Republicans into the party. I had Max Fisher as a mentor. I had Larry as a mentor. I had some amazing mentors in doing that. A gentleman by the name of Mel Sembler, Ambassador Mel Sembler. These were the forefathers of really opening up the party with Reagan to the Jewish communities to explain why the Republican Party has a different voice, a different bent. And as much as the Democrats always took credit for being close to Israel, without getting into specifics, the Republican Party through Reagan and Secretary of State Schultz, who brought the refuseniks in Russia back to Israel. And Israel changed during that time because a million Russians, the brightest people, scientists, doctors, left Russia to Israel. And very honestly, that's when Israel became a technology state and converted from an agrarian state. So I learned very early that to be able to secure the safety of Israel, we needed a strong America and we needed a strong Jewish vote in America. And I wanted to be part of that. That's very different than today you have what you all know is the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction movement, which really is a Palestinian-led campaign really boycotting Israel. It is a big movement on U.S. college campuses. So that's how I got involved in politics. You know, I am a moderate Republican. Despite what anybody may say in the Republican Party, it should be a party of a big tent because I am pro-choice. I am not pro-life. I am for some type of gun control. You know, those are two sacrosanct policies of the Republican Party that, you know, if you're Republican, you're not to have. But as it comes to fiscal spending and responsibility, I believe you teach someone to fish so they can be independent as opposed to giving them the fish. The philosophy of the Republican Party relating to the fiscal aspect also attracted me to the party. You just answered the next question I was going to ask. What were the other reasons in the party platform that you became a Republican that you align yourself with? Is there anything other than what you mentioned? I know you so well, Justin, that I knew you were going to ask the question <laughs> and I answered it before you even asked it. Oh, so that's how this is going to go? I can't surprise you anymore, huh? No. Yeah, uh, so so you would say that outside of, of Israel, the policies of personal responsibility, fiscal conservatism, what about religious morality? Because that has become a major platform of the Republican Party. Is that something that you align yourself with as well? How long do we have? <laughs> you know, I am a man of God. I do believe in Hashem. Some of the party platforms that dictate that morality, I think sometimes goes too far in the Republican Party. That religion and your belief okay, is a personal connection between you and our maker. I do not get involved in the party on those issues. I stay way far away of that because it's not where my interests lie. I don't think it's something that we should debate to answer your question. You spoke a little bit about how you first got involved in the party, and that was as a fundraiser and organizer of Jewish Americans. How and why did you decide to get involved in politics professionally? I'm a real estate developer, 
And part of being a real estate developer, you have to get entitlements when you buy property. By the very nature of what I did as a living, being a lawyer and trained as a lawyer, you always look to go to governments, whether it be cities, municipalities, counties, states. You want always good leadership. You want to make sure that when you are part of the economic development and improving lifestyles and creating dreams for people to buy homes or creating office buildings or retail centers, that they benefit the community, that you work in a private-public partnership with government. And that's how I always approached it. I never was afraid of government being too intrusive in my business because I always looked to government to be a balance between the private sector and the public sector. So being involved in politics, being educated as a lawyer, ultimately going and developing real estate actually led to my understanding of projects that had regional economic impact and how that had affected first-time homeowners or homeowners that moved up from their first house to the next house. Um, how you created apartment buildings, how you improved people's quality of lives. And that's what you needed to do because as a Jew, I believe in tikkun olam. And that means healing the world. If you don't put something out greater than yourself and you're doing it just for money, at some point in time, you'll be a flash in the pan. There has to be an overwhelming public purpose that when you're in business, you should always think of. There is a corporate conscience that we have gotten away from in America where companies refuse to pay taxes. I'm, I'm a proponent of a flat tax simply because everybody that puts billions of dollars of offshore, it's not fair for the working class person who doesn't have that ability to pay not to be able to pay their taxes. And everybody should have a burden of their fair share. The same way I personally believe, like in Israel, Every graduating student that graduates high school should do a two-year obligatory service, whether it be in the military or some NGO, before they go to college. I have spoken to many senators, many congressmen. It's just not something that our DNA would ever allow. Israel does it because it's part of its survival. Everybody's got to join the IDF. But we would be such a better country because very much like Israel, if you don't invest in the land, if you don't understand what the land represents, the same way in America, if we don't understand what the Constitution represents, the Bill of Rights, the rule of law represents, then you don't understand what it is to be an Israeli or you don't understand what it is to be an American. The one thing that makes this country what it is today is we know on the first Tuesday, every four years, we have a systematic change, rule of law, change of power based upon the voting that occurs the first Tuesday of every year. If, in fact, that day is ever changed, woe to the United States of America. So I just want to interject and say we could start building more pride in American values uh, by just teaching basic civics in high school, which is something that I think we, we talked about in our last pod has, has, has been lost in, in recent years. Knowing what the Constitution represents and what the Bill of Rights are and why our freedoms are so important is lost because they're not studied anymore. They're not taught anymore. Riz, you couldn't be more correct. You know, when I ask people, 
young people, millennials, who call me boomer. And I ask them, what form of government does America represent? And do you know 90%, 9 out of 10, do you know what the answer is? Democracy. And do you know, we're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. There are actually only a few countries on earth that are true democracy. I think Iceland is one uh, where it's, you know, because they have like 38 people that live in Iceland. But uh, <laughs> you need to take that back because there are more than 38 people. And if this podcast comes out, you're going to get the government of Iceland coming after you. However, in America, when you don't have oversight of the presidency by Congress, and you don't have the check and balances, when you have the unbelievable lack of dialogue between the Speaker of the House of one party and the President of the Senate of another party, and when they act like children in public, and the youth sees that type of discourse and dysfunction, it undermines what America stands for. I served uh, in three posts for President Bush. 43. I was on the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Um, I did infrastructure projects for a two-state solution in Israel and the West and, and the Palestinian Authority. I had the privilege of serving at the UN as the United States representative for the 61st uh, General Assembly uh, with Ambassador Bolton. And I had the privilege of serving our country as United States ambassador to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. And each post that I served during those eight years was an honor and distinction because it's not about me serving. It's about what I could do in these posts to foster good, sound foreign policy between countries um, that needed to have dialogue and common interests. There's a lot of issues going on with anti-Semitism globally right now. I have sort of whittled it down to that there are three basic types of anti-Semitism. There's type number one, which is the one we all know the most, which is white nationalist, neo-Nazi style anti-Semitism. Uh, we hear about this the most from the media. Um, in this country, in the United States of America, they commit the, the most hate crimes of any other racial group. However, if you look globally, I don't see white nationalists as sort of an existential threat to Jews worldwide because they just simply don't have the numbers. Even in America, they are centered mostly in very rural areas that don't have Jews within 100 miles, and they get together on the weekends and drink beer and talk about how they're the chosen race. But I don't see them as such a, an incredible threat, even though the media loves to report on them. The second type of anti-Semitism is almost never reported on, and that is left-wing anti-Semitism, which is usually under the guise of anti-Zionism or anti-Israel. You mentioned boycott, divestment, and sanctions. You have members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, who openly support BDS, who call for the elimination of the state of Israel. You have a lot of very well-educated people on the left, Ivy League-educated leftists, who openly hate Israel, who talk about Israel as the root of all the problems in the world. I personally do not see a distinction between being anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. I think they are one and the same. Israel is the only Jewish state in the world. And therefore, if, or if you're willing to say that Israel shouldn't exist, that is anti-Semitic to me. The third type of anti-Semitism 
is, again, very underreported, and that is Muslim anti-Semitism. Not so much a huge problem here in this country, but globally, we know that there is a exodus of Jews in Europe, in Italy, in France, and that is largely not due to white supremacists, but to Muslim anti-Semitism and the growing Muslim populations of those countries. And again, this is very underreported. And I guess what gets under my skin is I read the New York Times every day. I open it up and I, I cover to cover, I try to cover the whole thing. Whenever there is a story about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it is always presented as Israel, the aggressor, Palestinians, the victims, almost always. And I find that to be very interesting considering we know that there are 2 million Muslims who live in the state of Israel. They have a seat in the government. They're part of the government. They live with more civil rights than they do in any Muslim majority country in the world. We know that it's not reciprocal, that if a Jew goes into the Palestinian area, into Palestinian territory, they're in grave danger. And what I really wanted to, to ask you is why you think the media is invested in always painting Israel in a negative light. If you go from generation to generation, the door over door, every generation there was backlash and anti-Semitism against Jews. When people pronounce themselves to be God's chosen people, that in and of itself, when you have the Bible that chooses a religious entity, what is the one thing that brings all Jews together throughout time? The Torah. The Torah is the divining principles of what it means to be a Jew, the Old Testament. So if you take that through the generations, it is in people's DNA to be anti-Semitic. It isn't a function that Israel was formed in 1948. It displaced the Arabs. It won unbelievable wars, whether it's a six-day war, the Yom Kippur War, the might and power of Israel, how the world had to adapt to a tiny country being so strong that was an agrarian country, but yet could, could win amazing wars of people trying to push them into the sea. Forget the programs, forget the Spanish Inquisitions, forget the Holocaust. I could name you in time how many Jews have been killed for simply being Jewish. If you really want to talk about religion, more people have been killed in the name of God, unfortunately, than any other purpose. So when we want to fast forward Israel today being called an occupier, the reason why Israel was put in that position was the Arab nations did not want to deal with the Palestinians. They were never even considered Arabs. They were considered Palestinians. And their own people created refugee camps and wouldn't even take them in to their own countries. Even today, Jordan is responsible for the Dome of the Rock. There are whole repercussions. What's amazing is because of Iran today, foreign policy, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Israel and Saudi Arabia work very well together. Israel and Russia work very well together. So that when you talk about the white supremacists, they come from a different base of hatred. They come from the history of Jews are a society problem. That has been since the dawn of man, since we received the Ten Commandments, since we said we are God's chosen people. So when you talk about the left wing, 
Well, that was a genesis further along, Riz, that when you looked at Vienna and the Zionist movement in the 1800s, Zionism was the birthright of what the state of Israel ultimately became. And to have Jews that had their own army and represented their own country was something that the world had to, had to come into terms with. And when President Truman declared Israel as an independent state, there were ramifications. Look how England, the UK, in the Belfort Doctrine, pushed back. When you talk about the Muslim movement, that's rather new because the Muslim religion has been hijacked. You have 80,000 radical Muslims actually creating the noise, the disruption, and the terror for all the other Muslims in the world that are good people. Would you say that Hamas is a terrorist organization? Yes, of course it is. Would you also agree that the Muslims who live in Israel live with more civil rights than they do in any other Muslim-majority country? Israel's wrestling with that question. And it's not for me to, to judge Israel and answer that question. Israel has to find its own soul to understand how it needs to learn to live with the Arab Israelis. There's a plight, and, and I think we touched on it with how you were talking about Muslims are treated. The way that that gets digested in this country is it becomes a social action issue of a mistreatment of human beings. And that's how it gets translated in the media, and it causes the left wing to start distancing themselves from Israel. The 24-7 news cable changed not only how we hear the news, you don't have journalism anymore, and the media has bias, and everybody plays to who they want to sell because they're a profit for profit okay, enterprise. When you talk about why does the media portray a bias against Israel, because they themselves have a bias. It's that simple. What I think is there is sort of a, a hierarchy, if you will, um, of people on the left that believe that everything could be broken down and how discriminated against somebody is by virtue of their financial status. So because globally, Muslims tend to be uh, have less uh, wealth than Jews, we are sort of trained to be more sensitive towards Islamophobia than we are towards anti-Semitism. Because Jews have always been on the forefront of media, of culture, of Hollywood, um, and therefore they've always, in modern history, they've been well off financially. And that is looked upon as, as a negative uh, in a lot of left-wing circles. So I say to a lot of my Democratic friends, describe what being a liberal means. Now, I had the distinction and honor to be asked to be the chair of the Yitzhak Rabin Foundation, in honor to promote the principles of the late prime minister. And I will tell you, I was exposed to the unions of this country. I've been exposed to liberal Democrats. And we get into tremendous, very valid and productive discussions because I want to know what their definition of a progressive is. What's their definition of a liberal is? I will tell you, I have a problem listening to Fox because they're so far right, they don't represent me. And I have a problem listening to MSNBC because they're their alter ego. I end up listening to CNN because I don't have a choice. I like Lester Holt because he tries to do and report objectively both sides of the argument. 
And that, and, and I want to educate myself to an issue. I don't want to. I don't want to have a dogma of someone dictating a position based upon not factual, but because they are a TV show playing to the emotion of their audience. And when you look at some of Fox's main stays, they're just nothing but actors. Well, you know, that's a good segue, actually. Uh, you know, Jay, I know you have uh, some fun questions, but one of those fun questions I'm hoping is, so what do you think of the Trump era? What do you think of Donald Trump as a person? And, you know, I know you might not want to, for political reasons, get into too much, too much in the weeds here, but what do you think generally? I think he has done what no other president would do on certain issues because he has the ability of not being a politician to see things clearer as it relates to China, even Russia, Israel. So his foreign policy and economics, whether it be NAFTA, Canada, Mexico, without getting into the details of protecting our borders, I think he has done a wonderful, amazing job as a president dealing with those issues. In some areas, he's gone too far as it relates to how he presents things. We all know that he, someone should take away his Twitter. He is what he is. But what concerns me is that we have institutions of checks and balances. And I don't think he always understands that and respects that and does what he thinks he can do as a CEO of a company. And that's not how you should be as a president of the United States. I think civility is part of being president. When you look at President Bush, my boss, and Obama and the civility they have to each other where they don't agree with one another is what this country was formed on. And, we're, and we are more divisive now than we've ever been. And we need to heal this country. All right, so we're going to do a quick speed round. Four questions. Question number one, who is your favorite child? <laughs> Who's my favorite child? The one thing I will not say to my children is I love you equally. I love each one of my children differently with all my heart and all my soul. But you can't love each child the same. Each child has its own personality, its own demands, its own needs. And as a parent, what you want to teach your child is to be able to be strong and fulfill them on their own without dependency of your parent. Question number two, your favorite and least favorite part of being an ambassador. So what was wonderful about being an ambassador was the ability to change and make a difference between the United States and the Bahamas. You dealt from government to government. You dealt from American businesses to Bahamian businesses and you dealt to people to people. And making the difference in people's lives is the greatest privilege I've ever had. As you know, your mom had breast cancer. While she was in the Bahamas, we started the Bahamian Breast Cancer Initiative and Foundation testing Bahamian women for BRCA1, BRCA2. That being my favorite was giving the power a way to allow other people to have the ability to have power that they never have. My least favorite was having to deal with the interaction between government agencies in ways that you never prepared for as a political appointee because everyone lives in their own silo and never wants to get out of their silo to do something beyond what they think they had to do. And the one thing I tried to do in my embassy in Nassau was to bring the agencies together and build a common goal that everybody benefited from. That was hard and not fun. Favorite politician or political leader? Winston Churchill. He saved the world. Favorite song? Tea for the Tiller Man. 
I thought you were going to say Inagata Devita. <laughs> and uh, finally, favorite ice cream flavor. It's really hard. I love uh, creamsicle. I love vanilla Haagen-Dazs, and I love uh, Swiss vanilla almond. I just love. Uh, give me any ice cream; it doesn't matter. Yeah, you've thankfully you've passed that on to me. I have one speed question that I'm actually genuinely interested in. Outside of Israel, favorite country to visit? Greece. I knew you were going to say that. Okay, I think I think J- uh, Justin has said the same thing in the past, right? Am I correct on this? Sure. Yeah, yeah, we used to go all the time. So, I mean, I love Italy. I love a lot of different countries. Each country has something different to offer. But Greece and the history of Greece and the Greek people are very unique in many, many different ways. So, Dad, any final thoughts? I would like to reach out to everybody who's listening to this, who's in the ages of 20 to 40, and look at themselves and see where they can make a contribution in their life, in their world, in their sphere of influence to making the world a better place to leaving their mark on the world, opening up their arms, and figuring out what is greater than themselves or their family. Because as your grandfather said to me, one of the last things he said to me when he had colon cancer, at my funeral, will you let me know if I'm successful or not? And I said to him, Dad, you've been hugely successful in your life, in your family and your business. And he said, Nah. He goes, I won't know if I'm a success unless you tell me that at my funeral, it's a standing room only. Because then I know I have touched others. Others have taken the time of their day to come pay their last respects. And if that is a packed audience, I was successful. I just want you to let me know. And that's really the definition of success. Taking care of your family, loving your family, teaching your family. but also going out into the world and touching others in a way you make them better. So the the one thing I always say to the next generation, hey, we've made our mistakes. We have screwed up. We have screwed up royally in certain things, the climate. We haven't even touched on things we have effed up, but we did our best. So you, the next generation, make it better. Make it right. Stop blaming us for what we did wrong or giving the accolade for what we did right. But you can't change things unless you participate. Don't be a sideliner and just comment on other people's actions. Be a doer. Be someone who is committed to something in your life that will make you a better human being. That's what I would like to say, Justy. Thank you, Ambassador Siegel. This was great. I had a lot of fun. We should do this again. Maybe, maybe like we'll do this uh, you know, once a quarter or something. I'm, I'm available anytime. Nothing gives me greater pleasure. Um, it was fun on this side also. Thanks, Dad. Thank you, sir. Good night. All right, guys. I'm out. All right. That about wraps it up for episode three. Don't forget to go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. Ask questions. We'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media, Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, Down the Middle PC on Twitter and Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And if that's too confusing for you, just go to downthemiddlepod.com. They're all on there. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find me at, uh, at Justin Siegel at Twitter and Instagram. And as we know, Riz has no social media, so don't even bother looking. Oh, actually, on the contrary, I just 
reinvigorated my old friend Twitter. It's at Rob Leifer, R-O-B-L-E-I-F-E-R. That's my Twitter handle. All right, you heard the man. Follow at Rob Leifer on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's all for this week. We'll catch you next week. Signing off, I'm Justin. I'm Riz. Have a good night.